American colleges and universities attract students from around the world. In fact, there are over 1.1 million foreign students in the United States, according to Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So with that, advising those students is a massive undertaking. Jeff Cox from the Rochester Institute of Technology does just that. And today we're going to talk to him about how he does it and what are the biggest challenges facing students today. One last thing before we get started, if you can, please leave us a review on whatever platform you use and subscribe. Also check out our YouTube channel. As a reminder, we put different content up there that isn't on our feed here. So if you can, check that out and we'd really appreciate it. This is the Everyday Immigration Podcast. I'm David Wilkes. Welcome back to Everyday Immigration. I am very fortunate today to be with Jeff Cox, who is from the Rochester Institute of Technology. He leads their ISS office, the International Student Services office. Jeff, uh, why don't you say hello? Hi, David. Great to be here with you. Jeff, why don't you talk a little bit about what what you do at RIT? Sure. I started here in 1999, so just coming up on 20 years. We take care of about 3,000 international students uh, from right now 100 different countries, uh, predominantly graduate students, but uh, also undergrads, uh, a small number also studying uh, English as a second language, but many of them transition into a degree program. So we've got students really in all uh, all fields, um, right up through the PhD level. And in fact, at the PhD level, I think as as with most universities, uh, really a majority of, of our students in some programs are international students. So I've been doing this for a while. I love it. I did this um, for eight years previously at another university. And prior to that, I served in the U.S. Peace Corps. Wow. So you've sort of been all over. A bit all over. As a, as a kid, my dad uh, got assigned uh, to Europe. Uh, so we got to, to live in Paris for four years and London for four years and they went on to Switzerland and the Bahamas, so I got the travel bug. And, oh, wow. Uh, did, he, did he work for the government or, or an NGO? Navy, and then uh, worked for uh, private banking. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we had great great opportunities growing up to, to be in different countries and, and uh, learn to speak French. Uh, in Peace Corps, I learned um, a, a bit of uh, Kikongo uh, language. Um, don't get to use that very often these days. Wow. Wow. So that's... That- that's incredible. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the question I generally ask people when they come on is how immigration has impacted their life. But I guess more appropriately would be how has immigration not impacted your life? <laughs> yeah, we definitely uh, live and breathe it every day. Um, you know, we're here as advocates for our, mm-hmm. for our students. Um, you know, as I said, they're coming from all over the place. Uh, it's a, a bit of an easier transition for some uh, than others. Um, you know, we've got some students who are uh, coming from, from affluence, um, who have traveled quite a bit, um, but majority have not. It's their first time, uh, coming through an immigration process, going to another country. So we, we help them really from pre-arrival. Uh, we run an orientation program to get them up to speed and then we're here for them throughout their degree and beyond. Well, that's great. Uh, you know, and I think there's something to be said 
about when you're dealing with foreign nationals about, you know, knowing what that's like to sit in the office with a government official or, you know, having to worry about your visa or your, your status. And maybe you didn't quite as much, uh, bef- you know, with, with your parents when you were with your parents abroad. But, um, you know, I, I lived in France myself for a little bit and just the, the sitting in the prefecture, you know, hoping that the, uh, they called it the recipe would come and then I'd go and get the, the carte séjour and, uh, you know, just that experience of, of being this fish out of water, not understanding necessarily what's going on, uh, but being directed from officer to officer and form to form. I think there's something to be said about uh, having lived that in, in how you really approach, uh, you know, just, just life in your own country even. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I agree. It's, it's frustrating enough when you're dealing with your own home country's bureaucracy. Right. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> relearning a new one. Um, it, it definitely helps to have advisors. Um, you know, like I said, we're, we're here for the students. We've got a good team, uh, here at RIT with, uh, uh six people helping me out in, in serving that population. And then we're, we're benefic- benefiting from, uh, wonderful immigration attorneys like yourself who, who give some time to students thinking about their next steps. And so they, we, it's, it definitely takes a village. Um, and many of our students do stay beyond their graduation. So why don't we talk, let's, let's talk about RIT. Uh, you know, RIT is such an interesting institution. One of the things that's always interested me about RIT is its relationship with the, the deaf community. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, in fact, I was just telling a story the other day. One of our, my assistant director is, is retiring at the end of this month. She is fluent in Danish sign language um, and American sign language. Um, and my first week on the job here at RIT, we had a brand new student from China who only spoke uh, Chinese sign language. She's deaf. Oh, my goodness. Um, so she came to our office, and thankfully, she brought a classmate from China who spoke both CSL and ASL. So they spoke to each other. Lily vocalized uh, out loud the um, into spoken English so that I could consult on this particular question that had arisen um, related to immigration. And uh, the, the communication was was quite smooth, but I knew right away I was in a in a unique place. Um, people are really dedicated; they take the time to learn um, that additional language, American Sign Language, and there's great faculty support for uh, for folks to learn that. So, yeah, it definitely adds another layer. Um, you know, we have not a large population of deaf and hard of hearing international students, but um, enough that they have created different organizations. Uh, clubs, activities, uh, theater productions, and so forth. Um, so it, it just adds further diversity to our to our population here, which is fantastic. Well, that's incredible. I, and I'm just imagining the situation where the student, you know, needed to be translated first into Chinese sign language and then into American sign language and then into vocalized English yeah. uh, to explain immigration, which is this body of law. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it just shows how invaluable what you're doing is, right? Because one of the things that I think can be difficult to appreciate for people that aren't in any sort of advisory role is how difficult it can be to explain even simple concepts. And when you add an extra level of complication, uh, you know, with something like immigration or imagine taxes similar or higher education law or or a whole host of different things, uh, you know, when you're talking about your specialty, it can be very difficult to put that in a way uh, that even a native speaker can can appreciate uh, at, at an entry point where, where they don't have any sort of background in it. 
to, but then you have to go to an extra level where, you know, there might not even be cultural uh, similarities, right? You might be using idioms or you might be using uh, examples or metaphors that make sense to an American, but wouldn't necessarily make sense to, uh, you know, somebody from China or somebody even from Europe. Uh, so I, I, I guess I commend you and your office for all that you're doing to be able to work through, you know, several layers of, of language boundaries, really. Yeah, we are very fortunate in our profession to have a great um, association. It's uh, the Association of International Educators, NAFSA. Mm-hmm. Um, early on in my career, I went to a lot of um, sort of cross-cultural communication workshops, um, really keeping that in the forefront of our mind all the time when we're working with students. Um you know, really slowing down, um, taking the temperature, checking uh, for comprehension, um, you know, because in a lot of cultures, as you know, uh, the tendency might be for someone to, to, to indicate that they fully understand you when really they don't, uh, because they don't want to be insulting to your, the quality of your communication. <laughs> so so we, we will check in regularly just to make sure um, folks understand, especially brand new students. So Anybody new to the country, it's overwhelming in the beginning to be using using English all day long. And so we'll we'll put stuff in writing. We'll we'll have maps. We'll circle things to give directions because it's uh, it's just a lot for people to hold in, in their heads. So we we try to um, get lots of information out online and and really just slow down and, and make sure that we're moving at the right speed for the person in front of us. So. That's great. I mean, especially in an area like immigration, where if you agree to the wrong thing, you can get yourself in in quite a bit of trouble. Correct. Correct. We'll be right back with more from Jeff Cox. As regular listeners know, I am an immigration attorney, but this shouldn't be where you get your legal advice because it's not meant to be legal advice. I say it in the credits every single time. Instead, if you want an immigration consultation, you should email podcast at millermayor.com. That's podcast at M-I-L-L-E-R-M-A-Y-E-R.com. And the folks at Miller Mayor will give you a 10% discount on your next immigration consultation. Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, sort of the history of, of international students at, at RIT? Uh, you know, how, how has that developed over, over the time that you've been there? And, may, and if you know anything of before, uh, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Sure. We, this office was created back in the early 80s when there were only uh, just a, a couple of hundred international students here. Um, and uh, it's grown uh, exponentially Um you know, the, the big draw is from China and India. So we've got over 1,200 students from India alone, over 400 from China, um, pri- primarily coming for um, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math fields, but also um, fine arts. So we've got a number of, um, you know, particularly from Southeast Asia, Korea, Japan, students uh, studying fine arts. Um, glass, jewelry making, ceramics. So there's really a, a wide range. And I guess I could speak t- to historically having started in the field um, myself back in 91. Uh, we did everything on paper with carbon p- copy paper in between on a typewriter. We would make up these immigration forms. Uh, if you had an issue, you would call the local immigration Back then, it was INS, office. You'd get a verbal something over the phone sometimes. Sometimes it would be in writing. Um, 
but you might be given permission to cross something out and write a phrase in Latin like nunc pro tunc, uh, and uh, and then just make a revision on the form that way. Um, and it's it's evolved um, to an electronic system, as I'm sure you're familiar. So that that's probably been the biggest transition back in the early 2000s, following you know 9/11 the long proposed immigration electronic immigration system was finally implemented the CVIS system that we that we use today and that's really changed dramatically the flavor of our interactions so for the you know first 10 years of my career very much focused on helping students transition to this culture an american university etc and maybe 10% of our work was the paperwork for managing their immigration status now it's probably almost reversed uh, you know certainly more than three, quor- three quarters of our time is spent keeping the systems talking to each other uploading data every night to u.s immigration and certainly the tenor has shifted even more in recent years um to more of an enforcement tone i would say yeah. um yeah you know even if you just looked back the original electronic system was created under this uh u.s uh citizenship and immigration services branch but later it was taken over by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So that changes to some extent the, the tone and tenor um, of that system. But we have definitely seen that shift. So that that's a lot of what we do all day long is really help explain to students and then help them navigate uh, the different hoops to jump through. Well, and, and speaking of that, what, what are you seeing in, in advising international students? Are there particular trends or, or things that, that are, are either – you know, worrisome or maybe just unexpected. Uh, anything that you see on the horizon that uh, that international students are facing now? Sure. I mean, the the recent, um, uh, you know, not so recent, but the the, the initial travel bans that were implemented mm-hmm. uh, definitely drove up the anxiety dramatically. Um, we still have a few nationalities where students are not able to come. Um, you know, one example we had a student who had long been a refugee in uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, with their family and had gotten scholarship and was going to school there at our RIT's campus in in Dubai. And they wanted to come over here to the main campus Mm -hmm. um, in Rochester, but they were not able to do so because they are Syrian citizens. So that was one example. We don't have a large number of folks that are looking to do that, able to do that, but in this situation, that was the only barrier preventing him from coming. Um, we've also got certainly a number of, of Iranian students who are fearful of traveling because they fear that if they go home, their visa might not get renewed or it might take several months to get renewed and they could miss a semester. Um, and they're in a PhD program, for example. They don't want to get stuck outside of the U.S. So we see that. Recently, last month, uh, the government increase the fees for students. Um, so they'll be paying, you know, instead of 200 bucks, they'll pay 350 bucks, mm. uh, to, to get their CVIS fee Which makes a difference. Uh, before they can come over yeah. here. Sure. Um, you know, you add that on top of all the other fees, right. it's, it, uh, it adds up. Schools are being charged, are going to be charged a lot more. Um, there's several new fees. Some are well over a thousand dollars for universities. Um, some can afford that more easily than others. So you know, there's just a, a number of barriers to entry that are being put up, um, general sense of increased anxiety among students, um, international students in general. Sure. 
And, you know, a lot of it is, I think, very counterproductive to um, the value that international students bring to the United States. So when you talk a little bit about that, the, the value of international students, what, what have you seen as the biggest benefit uh, that has come from having a, a diverse international student body? Sure. There's easily measurable benefits, sort of monetary ones. Um, and, and there's some ni- nice calculators online where you can plug in um, how much financial impact international students have in your district, your, your, your um, congressional district, state level and federal level. For an example, federal level, international students bring $39 billion. They spend $39 billion in the, in the U.S. every year. When you add up tuition, wow. uh, room and board, transportation, spending money at Wegmans and so forth. Um, it's a, it's quite a, a big industry. That's an export, right? We're exporting education. Um, yeah. Instead of sending a, a car overseas, we're putting education into the brain of somebody who then goes back home. And they paid for it while they're here and they spent money here. So, sure. so it's a big financial impact. But I think personally and in our field, we, we, we certainly place a lot of value on the importance of having different voices on campus, different um, cultures, different perspectives. Um, a, a number of us Americans are not able to travel overseas. We don't, as a country, we don't go abroad in huge numbers. And so to have folks coming from other countries here, you know, we've got a big benefit. You know, you're on a project team, maybe you're engineering a new way to, to build a motor car and, um, you know, you've got somebody who comes from another country who's maybe been exposed some, to some different technologies or just different ways of collaborating as a team. And that team then really is strengthened. Um, yeah. and, and we see that, you know, we see that in a lot of the diverse teams um, at RIT and other campuses where we're competing, uh, whether it's a, a computer hackathon or um, last week when we had a mini Baja racing competition in, in, in the area up here. So so there's there's definitely a lot of value, um, both tangible and, and more on the soft skill development side. And, and just before I let that go, what exactly is a mini Baja? Oh, sure. <laughs> it's kind of an off-road um, dirt bike uh, uh, motocross um, program. Really? It's not a motorcycle. They're 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 mini like um, like sand buggies, like dune buggies. Okay. Um, yeah. And teams from across the U.S. universities send teams. Um, and it's hosted in different locations, but RIT, I think, hosts it every third or fourth year. And uh, it's really? quite a scene. It's, it's, it's amazing that the, the engineering that these students put together and developing new systems that certainly they'll get, they'll get snapped up by um, you know, automobile manufacturers and others, too. So. See, there were no races in law school. Right? We, didn't, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't get to build any cars or, or, or anything like that. That's um, true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I chose the wrong major. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's that's fantastic. So it sounds like you know RIT really is a uh, a great location for international students. Uh, you know, given your history and given the the fact that you can work with just a, a variety uh, of different cultures and, and backgrounds. What do you see as the biggest um, benefit that RIT really has to offer international students? Well, you know, in addition to the the wide range of, of degrees that we offer, again, that are really probably deepest in the STEM fields, um, we've got one of the oldest and largest co-op uh, programs in the United States. So these are paid internships. Uh, students will go out for a summer or maybe a half a year, uh, work mm-hmm. in industry, um, 
come back to the classroom, apply what they learned in a hands-on capacity working in industry. Um, and, you know, companies benefit from it as well. You know, a student will come out with the latest cutting edge programming skills. Um, they'll get put to work, uh, you know, Google, Motorola, Apple, um, and, and Harris RF, every, every company you can think of really. And in many cases, um, the companies are impressed by the students, see them as a future full-time employee and may, may make a job offer to them, uh, right away or, or upon graduation. So, so that's a big draw, especially for international students who may be, you know, really relying on financial contributions from a wide number of family members back home, um, maybe Uh taking out loans, um, yeah. And, you know, to pay that back, it's dramatically difficult when you if you're going to go back and, and make your earnings in their home country versus if you could work in the U.S. for a few years, you could probably, you know, put a big dent in your student loans that way. Oh, wow. So that's a that's a big draw for students. They, they're going to get the degree and then hopefully get get at least some experience working in, in U.S. industry. So when it comes to student loans for international students, are they limited in what they can get domestically or do they have to get their loans from their home country? Uh, what, do you have a sense of, of how they end up having to finance school? Yeah, almost always they have to get them from their home country. Um, okay. It's quite difficult to get one in the United States. You'd have to generally find a U.S. Um, co-signer mm-hmm. um, or um, rely on scholarships, um, uh, assistantships. So most of our international students are working while they're here. Um, really they're doing all kinds of jobs across campus, cafeteria staff, uh, up to, up to faculty research assistants. So yeah, it's for some, it's, it's quite a challenge to, to cobble it all together. Um, and, and, and certainly fund a little bit of a higher living cost too. So, yeah. Do you find that most of the students that you're dealing with, their long-term goal is to stay in the U.S. or is it more, you know, what you're sort of talking about, stay here long enough to pay down the loans and then maybe set something up back home or, or elsewhere? Uh, do you, is, is there sort of a, a split between the students? What do you tend to see? Yeah, there's a mix. Um, I think it's driven a lot by what the their economy is like back home. What are the job opportunities back home? Um, so if, if it's a, if it's really a a developing economy and they've got opportunities or maybe there's a family business, um, you know, that subset are, are traditionally maybe getting some experience here and then going back. Um, you know, one of the most challenging populations is, is, um, and probably one of our most talented are those students who are here on a Fulbright scholarship. So they're really, um, you know, among the best of the best in their and best of the brightest in their countries, uh, earn this very prestigious scholarship, may come over here from a, a developing area, do some advanced work, but the visa that they're on will require them to go back for at least two years back right. home. And, and understandably, there's a the thinking is to not um, contribute to brain drain from their countries. Mm. But the job prospects may be extraordinarily limited for somebody with uh, an advanced degree, maybe in a high-tech field. Um, so it's 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 heartbreaking in some cases where students have to go back, but I, you know, hopefully they find a position or maybe an academic position where they can teach many others and, and get the, the caliber of, of the uh, education up in their countries. Um, but those are some of the times the students who most desperately would like to stay here, but they're just simply not allowed to. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a number of conversations and usually it's with us companies that are 
are shocked that uh, yeah. that they can't keep this Fulbright recruit that they found, and you know they're willing to do you know almost anything to keep them. But the bar of of getting allowing a Fulbright to stay uh, can be incredibly high, um, and you know usually it's it's if there's some sort of uh, you know issue back home uh, that that would prevent the the Fulbright from going back safely. Uh, but but generally, it's just not not possible, as you say, which I think can be very shocking to people when they find that out. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, is there anything else that you, you want to bring up? Is there anything that you would, for example, tell a student, you know, let's say they're finishing up high school or secondary school in their home country? Wh- what would you tell them if they, they were having thoughts about coming to the United States? Well, I think it's still the best place to look at, at schools. We may not realize this as a country, as a nation, um, but we are really facing increased competition from the United Kingdom, from Australia, from many other countries for this pool of, of students who are, who are willing to go overseas, who are eager to go overseas um, and study. So I would definitely tell prospective students to, to still look carefully at the United States. Um, there's a wide range of offerings and I think we still offer one of the most flexible educational systems. Number one, uh, you know, number two, there's a lot of room for creativity. So students, in in many cases, are expected to think for themselves, contribute their own ideas, come up with something new um, versus just um, learn and regurgitate um, hmm. the content. Not to imply that 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 happens, you know, fully in other countries, but. But I think we're every country has its own mix. Yeah, everybody's got their own mix, and and I think that's probably still what we are known for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, we we do see students be very creative and and saying, look, I I'm really interested in in this field plus this field, and so can I create a major that encompasses both of those? And and so we we are usually able to accommodate those. Wow, uh, those types of requests. So so maybe I could have studied law. And- built cars at the same time at RIT. Absolutely, David, it's not too late. You can can still apply. There you go. (laughs) Let me know. (laughs) I'm still having trouble with the student loans myself, so I don't know that I would. uh, I don't know if I'm ready yet to jump in there, but I will keep that in mind for sure. Don't quit your day job yet. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I will. Well, that's that's fantastic. Jeff, Jeff Cox is director of the International Student Service at Rochester Institute of Technology. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, David. Anytime. And, and it's always great to have you up here on campus. I know our students really appreciate uh, your insights and, and, and your generous time uh, that, that you and your, and your colleagues at your firm have given to us over the years. Oh, I appreciate that. And, and I should point out, Jeff and his team are, are not just generous to students, they're generous to everybody. I got a very nice gift when my twins were born earlier this year. I can't say enough about the good people up at RIT. So thanks so much for coming on. The Everyday Immigration Podcast is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment. It's hosted by me, David Wilkes. Special thanks to Miller Mayer for letting us record in its offices and making its staff available to us. As I am an attorney, portions of this production contain attorney advertising and prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. In addition, this podcast is not intended to be legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship between its hosts, its guests, or its listeners. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use and give us a review. You can also connect through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or on the web at frostedlens.com. We'll be back with another episode soon and we'll see you then.